and I loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking dildo switchblades. We are talking 70s porn aesthetic. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about knife plus heart. Or knife and heart, or a knife in the heart, depending on... I don't even know. I mean, I always call it knife plus heart, because I I think it's catchier. But yeah, if you're going with the French translation, it would be a knife in the heart, which to me is actually a bit more apropos. I think so, too. But can you say the French title? Do you know it? Sure. Is it Un Couteau dans la Co? I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't have it in front of me. I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might want to say it. Because I will be of no help when saying any French word in this episode. <laughs> well, you should be able to get the director's name fairly easily because it doesn't sound French. No, no. Jan Gonzalez. I'm going to say that's, go. what, that, that's how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But yes, no, we, we are talking about Knife Plus Heart. Honestly, it's it's in my top five of the year so far. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, listeners, if you, uh, well, I guess, uh, well, we warned you about it last week, but this did get released yesterday. Mm-hmm. So we understand if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, I would recommend going ahead and seeking it out. You can get the Blu-ray, which has my review quote right on the front. Ooh. I know. Wait, is it attributed to you, or is it just attributed it to Blade It's attributed to Disgusting. I know. Aww. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. How are you supposed to get famous and get a career as a porn star if you uh, don't have your name on that box art? I do think this is my first Blu-ray quote. I've gotten poster quotes before, and I've gotten trailer quotes, but I've never gotten a Blu-ray quote, so it's fine. But my quote is, a gleefully trashy exploitation film with a heart of gold that deserves a place in the Queer Horror Hall of Fame. It's also in the trailer for this movie, by the way. Well, maybe we'll have to make sure to link to that on the Twitters. Maybe. And honestly, though, thinking about it, I don't know why I call this an exploitation film. Yeah, <laughs> It's I, really not. <laughs> I was like, I agree with the latter half of the sentence. It definitely deserves a position in the Queer Horror Hall of Fame. Because it's a long quote, too. I wonder why the marketing didn't just put deserves a place in the Queer Horror Hall of Fame. I, like, they clearly wanted the exploitation part. You know what? Whatever. I'll yeah, take it. gleefully trashy sounds probably more more attractive to a larger audience of people. Does it? <laughs> I mean, it, it's attractive to me, but I mean, if you tell someone a movie's trashy, it whatever. And again, not really trashy. You know what? Whatever. I was probably drunk when I read it, but it's okay. Ninety percent. Yeah. Ninety percent. So anyway, okay, we'll just dive right into it. So we are talking about Knife Plus Heart, which was officially released in theaters on March 15th of this year, 2019. So I do think for the main feed, this is our most, like our newest film that we've covered. Absolutely. So take that guy on Twitter who accused us of withholding all the new releases for the Patreon account. Oh, yeah. And then he was like, you can put gay stuff in the other stuff in, in your feed. But like, like, OK, whatever. I blocked him. Uh, it was great. So uh, this film was distributed by Altered Innocence, which I looked them up. They haven't done like a ton of stuff there, but they are mostly dealing in queer films, which is great. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Ho- hopefully they kind of, you know, blow up. They're very responsive on Twitter. So if you want to get in touch with them, they will probably respond to you. Yes. <laughs> yes uh now we are looking at a runtime of 110 minutes and as my usual critique of things i think it's a little too long yeah and we'll get to it but there is a section in the middle of this movie that i could do without even though it kind of is necessary to the plot of the film 
So yeah, I, opening weekend rank was number 91. It only opened in six theaters. I think most of them were LA and New York. And it made $4,728, ended its domestic run with $32,516. I don't think it ever expanded beyond those six theaters. So good for you, Los Angeles and <laughs> New Yorkers. But now the world can finally see this film. There we go. Yeah, because I know a lot of people were very, very excited about this film, and then it didn't even platform. You're right. It never really got even a limited release. So for a lot of people, I think this is the very first time that they're finally going to be able to get their eyes on this thing. It is. And listeners, we actually were planning on covering this film back in March when it was released because we just assumed it was going to go VOD either the same day or the week of, and it Mm -hmm. did not. It did not. Yeah, we've had to wait to cover this, but um, I know Joe's been looking forward to seeing it for a while. Jesus Christ, it's been on my freaking watch list. This actually had its uh, premiere at cons in 2018. So it's actually been a full fucking year that I've been waiting to see this movie. I have to ask. So you you say cons. I used to say that, but I thought it was can. I say cons because it's in France. Okay. It could be cans. No, I, I don't think you even say the S. I think it's just can. can. Like a can of soup. Can. I think so. How does my Canadian accent when I say can? That kind of sounds Southern, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Can. Jesus, can. (laughs) Um, Get some canned ham. Yeah. Oh, my God. No one one gets canned ham. Uh, So reception of this film was very positive. Uh, You're looking at an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 72% from audiences. Although I think the audience score is a little, like, there aren't many of them. Right. We'll have to wait and see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. Metacritic score is a 69. <laughs> it's a 69 out of 100. Perfect number for this movie. How appropriate. Although there is no, wait, no, there is no 69ing in this movie. No. And there's no user score because <laughs> there is no user score. Off its game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, directed by Jan Gonzalez, who, he does a lot of shorts, but the only like notable like feature film I've seen he, he had done was is something called You and the Night. And mm-hmm. a lot of his staff. Staff? What do we call them? Crew. A lot of his crew <laughs> also worked on that film. Mm-hmm. That one's about an orgy, but it's apparently very talky. Oh. So it's like when you think they're going to get down to fucking people, will just stop and they'll do like direct address monologues to the camera about philosophy and various other things. Mm, gotcha. And then uh, Gonzalez also co-wrote the film with Cristiano Mangione. Cristiano sure. Mangione. Oh, God, I'm sorry, guys. But this is Cristiano's debut feature. So this is the, his first feature film that he's written. Jan is his second one because he, he did this and You in the Night. Mm-hmm. And the only other really like important thing I want to mention is that the composer is a band called M83. Have you ever heard of them? No, I haven't. But apparently they're really popular. They are, yes. They're kind of synth-rocky, uh, as you've got on your sheet. They've done scores for a number of different, well, I think just one other movie, but then they've contributed songs to a bunch of different soundtracks. Yeah, they've been in a lot of soundtracks. The score was for Tom Cruise's movie Oblivion. But also important to note, though, is I believe um, the lead singer or the lead composer of M83 is Anthony Gonzalez, who is the brother of the director. Mm-hmm. Younger brother by four years. Gotcha. These are the random things that you find when you look into movies, like people just so excited to say, oh, and they're actually related. And then you see other reviews and you're like, did they not do their research and realize that this is his younger brother? So that's why this super famous band is doing this somewhat obscure little indie queer horror film. I know. And I still really talk about music in my reviews because as we've discussed, I'm not really good at like critiquing music. Mm-hmm. But I did mention Amy because I like I do like the synth scores are kind of a way to my heart. 
This is true. Despite the fact that I'm not in love with Giallo films, I do like the music that they contain, usually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who had five minutes for how long it would take Trace to bring up that he doesn't like Giallo films? Anybody? Take a (sighs) shot. Take a shot. (laughs) I I really... Y'all, I have have tried. I've tried. Whatever. Uh, Joe, what's this movie about? Just to clarify, this is not an Italian Giallo film, though. This is a French Giallo, so maybe that's why you like it more. Maybe, but but the, the Giallo aspects of it, like the, the things that I don't like about Giallos are the things that I don't like about this movie. Yeah, that's fair. So, but again, I like this movie. I gave it a four out of five. It's just like, there are narrative things that I really, really find boring. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Bear with me. I, I feel like these are just getting longer and longer each week, but uh, here we go. So the plot for Knife Plus Heart. Well, uh, hold on, because yeah, this is a very convoluted plot, <laughs> and that's part of the reason why it's going to be long. Yeah, I tried to keep the middle section as streamlined as possible, we'll put it that way. Okay, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Okay, so the film opens as Carl, a Twinkie adult video performer, is picked up at the gay bar by a man in a leather gimp mask. I debated whether or not to call it a gimp mask, but I'm pretty sure that's what they're called. So, okay. As his most recent scene is being edited, Carl, not the man in the gimp mask, the porn action is intercut with Carl's murder, where he is repeatedly stabbed in the anus by a dildo switchblade. So... There's your leading logline. I think I would call it a switchblade dildo, because the dildo has a switchblade in it. If you say it's a dildo switchblade, then that would imply that the switchblade is, well, maybe, shaped like a dildo. You're probably right that it reads better as a switchblade dildo. I think that's how I refer to it in my review, but I don't know. I actually debated whether or not this was even a switchblade, or if it's in... Yeah, I guess it is. I think it's a switchblade, but... Well, no, because it it just pops out. It doesn't, like, swing out. Yeah, I thought that if a knife just comes out straight, that it's like an angel blade, as opposed to a switchblade. But I could... (laughs) You know way more about blades than I do, because I don't know that term. (laughs) And don't ask me why. Don't ask me why, people. Okay, Uh, continue. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so Carl's dead. He's been stabbed in the butt a bunch of times, and now he's dead. Yeah. Yay, poor Carl. It's grody. Yeah. Title card reveals that we are in Paris in 1979, and we quickly meet Anne, who is the director of these blue movies, as well as her ex-girlfriend slash editor, Lois. Or Loie. 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 Because it's French. Yeah, sure. I actually tried to, like, write it out phonetically to help myself when I was doing this, and it clearly did not help. That's okay. The film follows Anne's work on her latest film, which she eventually titles Homicidal. So, wait, wait, wait. Homocidal. I, I, I know that's what you said, but like it really sounded like hom- homicidal. It's homocidal. Yeah, homocidal. Yeah. Or le tuel homo. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So we see her recruiting Nans, who is a new actor, because she's got to replace Carl. And she finds him at a construction site. She voyeuristically tracks her ex repeatedly, which is helpful since they work together. And of course, she's working with her actors, such as Archie, who is also her kind of on-set assistant, and Thierry, who is a dick who just wants to get paid. And he's literally a dick because he's also an actor. And a heroin addict. And a heroin addict. Yeah, he's the next one to die. He gets stabbed through the back of the head while he's performing fellatio. Please note that I used proper terminology before Instead of just saying blowjob? Yeah, because <laughs> I figured we would have fun with it later, but we should, you know, encourage people to use proper sexual terminology. Okay. All right. 
So, fun thing about Anne is that she is seemingly psychically connected in black and white visions with the killer. And she decides that it would be a super fun idea to begin recreating the real-life murders as scenes in homocidal. Spoiler alert, it's not a good idea. At the rap party, uh, it seems as though she's going to reunite with Lois, but instead there's a sudden storm and the death of another actor, this time trans sex worker slash actress Marta, and this sends Anne into detective mode. So this is where the film starts to get a little more surreal, a little bit more fantasy dreamlike. So Anne runs away to the countryside. (laughs) This fucking segment. She decides to track down the origin of the rare bird feathers that have been left at the scene of the crime. And she goes into the country, and there she uncovers the tale of two young lovers, Guy and Heichem. And that ended in tragedy when Guy's father discovered them together in a barn, and Heichem was burned to death. Although you don't learn that in any kind of streamlined fashion, you have to learn that in a series of convoluted encounters with various unimportant people. I will say, though, that it's Hisham. Not Is it Hisham? It's Hisham. Okay. Because okay. the killer says, Hisham! So many times in the end, in the end scene. <laughs> okay. All right. So Anne decides to set a trap with her new film, Hex Rated, <laughs> which goes disastrously bad when the killer kills both Jose and, whoops, Louise, who dies protecting Anne on the set. So Anne then proceeds to get even more drunk than usual because she's also a big old closet drunk. Mm-hmm. And she attends the premiere of Homocidal at the Porno Theater, where Nans also shows up because, of course, he's like, hey, I'm in this movie. I'm going to go see myself on screen. Unfortunately, he looks exactly like Hichem, and that attracts the attention of the killer, a horribly burned gee. We eventually learned that Anne has kind of forgotten that she has appropriated Guy and Hicham's story for a previous <laughs> film. And Guy has been paying her back by killing all of the actors who worked on that. And he is, of course, also after her. So she ends up saving Nans, And the crowd mistakenly believes that Guy is committing a hate crime in the theater. So they drag him up onto stage. They beat the shit out of him. And then they stab him to death. And as the credits roll, we see Anne and Lois reuniting on the Greco-Roman set of her next film, which boasts a bevy of new boys. But of course, this is just a fantasy idealization. Okay, so I know we'll save the ending for later, but I did have, I had to ask. So did she just come up with the idea for the barn burning porno by herself? Or did she read about the event and that's what inspired her to make the porno? feel like you could interpret it in either way so you could argue that she is psychically connected to this killer and as a result that's where she got the inspiration or you could say that she read about it she heard about it and then she made the movie and as a result of making the movie and appropriating this poor boy's story she became psychically connected to him as he went on his murder spree i honestly didn't get the site i mean i i know what you're talking about because like yeah it's like these overexposed flashbacks or cutaways to or mm-hmm. it, it looks like a film negative almost uh i guess that's that's what it does look like mm-hmm. to the scene of the crime yeah but like that's the thing that's like when it ended i was like a lot of this just is happenstance. Like, it's all, all things happening just by chance, especially with Nans looking like Fubad. And also, is Fubad dead or is he just gone? Uh, I think Fubad is gone. It seemed like he had left the company. Although it would have made more sense if they maybe had have had him be the first murder or yeah. a different murder. But 
I agree. Part of this is that the film, it's not really determined by plot. And of course, that is because it is influenced by giallo yes so what the fuck's a giallo okay so i'm sure we'll have some giallo nuts listening to this and i apologize if i get any details wrong so i'm just gonna read directly from the wikipedia um in a a, you know excited tone (laughs) but all right so basically the short answer is giallo is essentially an italian thriller horror that has uh, mystery or detective elements but mostly contains um slasher crime fiction psychological thriller psychological horror sexploitation sometimes Sometimes supernatural elements, but mm-hmm. basically just think of it as an Italian slasher movie. Yes. Now, that's the easy answer. And again, th- these were really, they, they kind of got created in the 60s. They became really popular in the 70s. It's considered basically the predecessor and eventually a significant influencer of the American slasher film, or what we know as the American slasher film. And that is what it is. But there are certain elements that really, like, help you to understand that you are watching a giallo film. But here's the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Critics apparently do disagree on the characterization of it. So, let's see. Do you want to talk about visual tropes versus narrative tropes? Well, so, okay, hold on. Apparently, critics do consider that you can divide giallo into two different types. M. gialli for male and F. gialli for female. With male-focused, uh, usually sees a male outsider witness a murder and becomes a target of the killer when he attempts to solve the crime. Whereas for female gialli, a female protagonist is embroiled in a more sexual and psychological story, typically focusing on her sexuality, psyche, and fragile mental state. This movie kind of merges those two by adding in that queer element, but she's not the sexual focus of mm-hmm. the killer. No. She's treated much more like a man in that regard. Yes. And this film does subvert a lot of those, you know, expectations that you have from Giallo films, which I think is maybe why I like it more than that typical Giallo that I've seen. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. So, <laughs> giallo films are generally, generally characterized as gruesome murder mystery thrillers, and the archetypal giallo plot involves a mysterious black-gloved psychopathic killer who stalks and butchers a series of beautiful women. Basically, with that description, I should love all these movies. <laughs> it's the stylistic elements that I don't love. So, there's that basic narrative structure of, okay, like, oh, here's a killer doing things. But the problem is... There's an unusual lack of focus on coherent or logical narrative storytelling. While most giallo have, or gialli, have a nominal mystery structure, they may feature bizarre or seemingly nonsensical plot elements and a general disregard for realism in acting, mm-hmm. dialogue, and character motivation. Yes. That is the problem that I have with it, and I have a lot of trouble getting over those hurdles, which I understand that that's a primary drawing factor for some people and why they love Gialli so much. I must say, I'm always a little bit surprised when you reference that that's the thing that you struggle with, like that Mm -hmm. is your hurdle, because you have talked such a big game about not being bothered by plot inconsistencies or shallow characterizations in Mm -hmm. North American films. So I'm wondering too, is it something to do with the time period? Because these are typically 60s and 70s films. Is it something to do with bad dubbing issues? Dubbing is totally a factor. Okay. There is something about the dubbing that I can't get over. But also, I feel like in American films, when I when I say that, though, it's those are typically like your soapier films. I mean, I guess you could say that Gialli have a soapy feel to them, because they are over the top, especially when it comes to the acting. Yes. But I guess the American style of soapiness, I find more entertaining and more of like, it's bigger. I don't know, man. I, I just can't. I can't get into the Italian ones, but I do think the dubbing plays a part in it. 
I mean, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just no. curious because it seems like it shouldn't be as much of a barrier, but I can appreciate like there are a lot of people who try to get into these and it's interesting too because some people consider this a subgenre, like its own subgenre of horror, whereas other people will say, oh, it's actually a bit more of a national cinema because typically we don't tend to see a lot of other Italian horror films across the pond. Yeah. I don't think you're putting me in the spot. And this is why I, I would like to watch more Giallo films because I don't fully know what it what is about that I can't connect with. And I, I do think it's a stylistic thing and it's something, like, I'm sure the dubbing is only a part of it, but. It's never worked out for me. But again, I haven't seen a lot of Giallo films. I've only seen a handful. Mm -hmm. But there are things that I do like about them, which mainly are the gory kills, because that's also a big trait of these films. They typically feature very elaborately staged, gory kills that also have a lot of, um, you know, very fun camera work. Yes. I like the lighting shit. It's super, like, stagey. I like the POVs of the killer stuff. I don't always... Love the detective stuff, but that also ties into the narrative of, like, the lack of structure. And as we'll talk about in Knife Plus Heart, detours that aren't very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that to me, in addition, I'll echo your disdain for dubbing because I don't always love that. Although you can, some of them, you can just get over it and others, it's borderline incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But I'll confess that the meandering narrative is usually the thing that holds me back from some of these it does get easier on a rewatch. So the first time you're watching yeah. these, you're thinking, okay, it's a detective story. They're laying out clues for me. I'm like this amateur detective who is usually like a tourist or a, a news reporter or something like they're often not cops. Right. And cops are idiots are inconsequential in a lot of these films. So you're like, oh, that's me. That's my surrogate proxy on screen. We're going to solve this case together. And instead you're like, wait, why the fuck are we out in the countryside? What the fuck is with that pyramid in the middle of the woods? Why do we have bird feathers? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's, again, I love murder mysteries. I love the clue shit. That whole concept. I love it. And I also think maybe there are elements of noir that are maybe inherent. Or not yes. inherent, but um, that, that Gialli share. Noir and Gialli share common traits. And as we've yeah. discussed, I don't like noirs either. So... I mean, again, clearly it's just I need to go watch more and just kind of like really sort out my feelings on them. <laughs> I don't know. I think you have your feelings and now you're maybe on a search to discover if there's a particular director or maybe a certain kind, you know, like maybe you would prefer the female oriented Gialli as opposed to the male oriented ones. Right. You do like a, you do like a woman, you know, kind of taking charge of her sexuality. I do. And I think so. Um, the lead in this movie is played by Vanessa Paradis, who's Anne. And I've never seen her in it. Well, I'm sorry. I've seen her in Yoga Hosers, uh, but that's it. Not Jesus a good movie. Christ. How do we keep coming back to Kevin Smith movies on this podcast? I don't know. I don't know. But I think she's great in this movie. She's fantastic. Yes. And I love her character. And I mean, you know, she's like just like drunk porn director. <laughs> yeah. She's a very out and proud lesbian. Like the director, Jan Gonzalez, is on record as saying that he was trying to do a kind of queer utopia with this movie where nearly every single character that you encounter is gay or lesbian mm -hmm. or trans or, you know, we've really got a good spectrum of sexual identities in this film. But arguably, they're all... I mean, they're all positive in the way that we're dealing with homophobia, but it's 
inverted and slight and it's used as a critique like there's a reason why this film is set in 1979 and yeah so on, so. well yeah I mean, because even like when um when Anne goes up to nuns in the to approach him to be in her movie that that exchange wouldn't have been i mean i i didn't i wasn't alive in france in 1979 but i can't Are imagine sure? that something like that would have gone over smoothly <laughs> yeah because he's like a young punk who identifies as straight and he's trying to be macho even though he's got this adorable baby face. But she basically just sells him on the money because she's a powerful badass bitch who's like, yeah, I make porn movies. But if telling people that I make porn isn't going to go over well, she just says, yeah, I make movies. Do you want to be a star? Do you want to make money? All you have to do is get your dick sucked or fuck some guy. Don't worry about it. We don't always have enough girls. <laughs> yeah, and his sexuality seems a lot more fluid than he lets on. Mm hmm. He's definitely a little bit curious. That's why he ends up going into the dark room in that final climactic scene. Yeah. Now, this movie is very sexual. And yet not at the same time. Yes. And so, yeah. Okay. And I was actually going to say about the violence, too, because the movie peaks early when it comes to the gore and like the killings. Yeah. I would argue that only those first two, Carl and Thierry, are the really graphic ones. For sure. Everything after that's kind of like, meh. Yeah, I'm curious, do you see that as the intersection between the different types of films that Gonzalez is making? He has said in a couple of different interviews that he started by focusing on Anne and thinking of it as a lesbian romance film. Yeah. And then he intersected in giallo and slasher films. Well... I think you're onto something there, but when a filmmaker is doing that, it can make it easy for the film to feel like it doesn't know what it's trying to be. I don't really get that impression with this one, although, you know, you may disagree or someone else may disagree. But yeah, it's a, it's a nice little blending of genres. Mm -hmm. But it definitely feels like the Giallo stuff is relegated to the first act. Or, well, no, I would no, say the sorry. slasher <laughs> stuff is at the first yes. act, and then the Giallo stuff is the saggy, <sighs> meandering middle section, and then we come to the sharp political critique at the end. Okay, so I'm going to confess something. So I saw this movie at Fantastic Fest back in September, and I'm reviewing it. I fell asleep <laughs> during the second act, and it was literally from the second they found that damn bird feather and she goes off to like the weird bird person mm -hmm. and then her sojourn into the countryside. Did you miss the guy with the chicken arm? I miss the guy with the chicken arms and I miss, yeah, her, you know, making friends with the woman who is an alcoholic. Kathy. K yes. Who in another life Kathy. could have been her lesbian countryside romance. Yes. And then I woke up, I want to say during the premiere of Homocidal. Now, can you imagine how confused I was? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, you'd probably be like, where the hell is Lois? <laughs> oh, wait, no, sorry, you're right. No, I woke up during, like, during that murder scene, sorry. Oh, you woke up during Hex Rated. Yes, I woke up during Hex Rated. Now, listeners, I didn't review the movie after that. I actually reached out to Alter Innocence, and I got a screener, and I rewatched it. So that was Good my boy. bad. I should not drink wine before going to see a movie, and also it was a festival, but, you know, I'm not going to defend myself, it's whatever. I saw the movie again. Everyone, just help me in helping Trace reach out to him and encourage to get the help that he needs. <laughs> but but anyway, here's the thing. So watching it for this episode, I, it was my third time watching it. I found my mind dazing, like going into other places during those fucking bird scenes and that barn scene. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't be a little bit surprised if 
part of it isn't intentional because the whole section where she goes into the country, it's just Anne. You're following her, interacting with a bunch of these people that she'll never meet again. So it's like, hey, I'm meeting up with Guy's mom at the cemetery in the woods. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to Crazy Bird Lady and Chicken Hand Guy at the pyramid. Like, they're providing information, but as we've talked about in the Gialis, at the end of the day, like, really all you need to do is figure out that these two men had a love affair. The father of one of them discovered them. He got into an altercation. He burned down the barn. It's never really clear if it's an accident or a murder, but only one of them survived. And that is really the backbone of why these murders are now happening. But it's not important how you kind of get there. And I think part of it is that Gonzalez is saying, okay, this is how the investigation tends to happen in a Gialli. But at the same time, it's supposed to be dreamlike. Yeah, but if you don't follow all the turns and twists, that's fine. Yeah, well, and that was my thing, though. I was like, how the fuck did even like going to the bird place? I was like, how the fuck did we get here? Because they, they have the feather and then they go to the phone book and they look mm. up bird places. And I guess the first one that they find, like, it's again, this it's not a bird shop. It's a pyramid in the middle of the woods. Oh, yeah. Like she opens what looks to be like a fucking back alley door and she wanders into the woods where there's just a giant two and a half three yeah. story pyramid but here's the thing an american making this movie you go to a bird shop they say oh yeah this is like a, this bird is usually in this area of the, the world mm-hmm. then they go to the microfish in the library and they read about news stories <laughs> and then they find the story of the barn in the microfish and that's how they find out about it you don't and that cuts 15 minutes out of this movie you just wanted to say microfiche Microfiche. Fiche. Microfiche. But, or, or if it was the present day, it'd be a Google search. But I mean, but, <laughs> I just, I really just don't like that whole thing with Katy. I do think, even though I literally just dismissed it as something that was, you know, dreamlike and you don't really need to I follow know. it. I do think actually that there's a lot of symbolism. She has to go on this narrative journey, in part because it has to drive her to not only discover the pair of them so that she can set up this horribly planned trap that she has mm-hmm. but this is her processing the demise of her relationship with Louis because yeah. Louis has sent her a letter that basically says i fucking hate you never talk to me again right and she is day drunk throughout this entire section she is slamming back the whiskey like it <laughs> that, is going that, out of and it's a giant bottle of whiskey too like it's she just polishes like... it off and then she asks that innkeeper for another bottle yeah and then he's like, oh, don't don't, don't give any more to Kathy, by the way. She's a drunk, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. People got problems in this movie. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. To a certain extent, yeah, it doesn't need to be this long. It doesn't have to be this complicated or weird or confusing. But I do think that it's important for her to go through this process. Because really, at this point, she spent the entire movie pining for Louise, but not actually appreciating what she's done to contribute to the demise of her relationship no and it seems like at this point she can start to see some of those tangents between another love affair that went wrong and also to even see that there are other sexual partners in the world that she could be meeting if she were so fucking laser focused on her goddamn ex yeah or you know appropriating real life tragedy into her pornos <laughs> yeah like i mean she's She's kind of a horrible person. Yeah. And by kind of, I mean, she's a horrible person. <laughs> she's just very flawed. She has issues. She, you know, she's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But she's never once was I like, I don't like 
I don't oh, dislike no. I mean, the character. Just because she's a horrible person, like, she's horribly flawed. She's a narcissist. But as I said earlier, she's a badass businesswoman. She's stomping around in those fucking boots and that leather trench that is, like, Ooh. gorgeous. <laughs> I think the only hetero non-queer people in this movie are the cops. Uh, yes. If you want to consider Nans oh. as a, a fluid gentleman, then yeah. Well, and I guess Katy and her, like, husband or whoever, uh, and the bird people, whatever. No way, Katy is totally... Oh, I'm sorry, sorry, yeah, a lesbian. <laughs> yeah, your friend, that might as well be like, please go down on me, right. your friend. <laughs> my, one of my favorite scenes is the interplay between Anne and the cops. The first one they have when they're inter- <laughs> interrogating her about Carl, and they're like, what kind of movies do you make? And she's like, don't look like you already know, you don't know already, come on, like, don't fuck with me here. yeah. There's also something mildly sexually perverse about the younger cop, because when he gives her the feather, I noticed it on this most recent rewatch, because I went back and watched the second half of the film, because like you, I also have a slightly spotty memory of it. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that when he gives her the feather, he says, I like to keep a trophy or a memory from each yeah. of And I was like, oh, dude, you're... You're a bit of a pervert, aren't you? Like, it's you know true crime stuff, you're like, oh, this dude's a serial killer. I mean, maybe in 1979 it was different, and cops could do that. I don't think that's the case, but... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is a film that's informed by sexuality, and it associates sexuality with violence, right? Like, all the murders are intercut with film sequences or they are recreated as film sequences that are turned into sexual situations. So Mm -hmm. it's not surprising that everyone in this film would then be a very sort of sexually defined character. It's by design, for sure. Now, when it comes to the sex, were you a bit just... Maybe disappointed is the wrong word, but were you, like, surprised that it wasn't, (laughs) considering the subject matter that we're watching, that it wasn't more sexual? Like, I guess it's a sexually charged film, but there's not actually a lot of sex in it. No, it's true. I was actually not, yeah, disappointed is not the right word. I expected that there would be both more gore as well as more sex. Or, Or penises. Yeah, I actually thought early on in the film, because you don't see the killer take out his penis, I thought Mm -hmm. that it was setting it up for a gender flip. Because, I mean, this film is so Uh... informed by De Palma and other North American sexualized thrillers that I was waiting to see if this was going to be an uncomfortable trans killer situation where you think I'm going to pull out a penis, but actually I don't have one because I'm a woman, but I do have... Switchblade dildo. Well, but, dildo but switchblade. the killer doesn't have a penis, though. It's true, but it's because he was castrated. Right, right. Like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Actually, I think that I think we do see that shot of the penis getting cut off, though. So there is a penis in this movie. It's just when it's getting chopped off. Yeah. It's giving me those Calver flashbacks, and I feel warm and fuzzy. Gross. Fucking French people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> ah, we love you, French listeners. But I, I love that you mentioned how it's like, you know, this kind of like queer haven universe, because it's, I mean, refreshing to see it in, I mean, it's not a mainstream horror film, obviously. Even if this is like an American film, like this isn't going to go to theaters. <laughs> no, no. But it's still like, this is kind of where this queer like horror cinema has to start and just kind of like, it's never going to be mainstream, I guess. Although in a perfect world, it will be. But it's nice to see that this something like this is getting made. 
Well, okay. So it's interesting that you bring this up because one of the things that frustrated me when I was doing a very tiny bit of research for this, the number of reviews that were coming out from more traditionally mainstream outlets, such as Uh Variety and Slant and AV Club, and I honestly felt like they were missing the point on two different sides. Like, like what? A lot of the reviews would talk about, oh, this film is kind of like cruising and De Palma and it's got, you know, some giallo influences, but they made a point of talking about how unsuccessful it was because you don't care enough about the characters because it's not oh. gruesome enough to be considered a slasher film. Like none of them mention social commentary or political commentary like mm-hmm. none of them even acknowledge why this film is set in 1979 before the AIDS crisis when a lot of people would consider it to be like the high point of gay utopia because you could get drugs and you could have sex yeah. with whoever you wanted and people were far more liberated because it was the fucking 70s and it was right before everything changed in the 80s when AIDS basically killed the fun yeah but none of the reviews touch on any of that and part of me was like okay they're missing the point on a lot of the horror stuff because they say oh it's like a subpar giallo but that's but as you mentioned already that's not all it is though yeah like it's 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 a lesbian relationship drama too yeah so they're missing the horror cues most of them or they're touching on it very tangentially and then they're totally missing the queer Mm -hmm. it's crazy they're like, oh, the the lead protagonist is a lesbian woman, and it's she's directing these horrible movies, and she's like a trashy director. And I'm like, but she's not a trashy director. She's a woman who's making narrative-driven romance films that happen to be porn. Yeah. And she's actually based on a real person. Like, if you read the interviews with Jan Gonzalez, mm-hmm. he talks about how this is a real woman I found it, and then I lost it. So, yeah, the role of Anne Perez is inspired by the life of Anne-Marie Tenzi. Mm. There's virtually no information on her at all. (laughs) Yeah, like... I basically found out that she was a real-life porn director. She made what was considered low... Like, low-class or not mainstream distributed porn, but that she was in love with her editor, and they had a tumultuous relationship, and that's where he started. So he wanted to make a film that acknowledged the work that she had done as a female porn director in the 70s, and how she had kind of never gotten her credit for doing these interesting subversive takes, and then he added to that with the murders and this other stuff, because that's also what he's very interested in is like the sexualized violence and that sort of thing because he loves horror movies yeah but i thought it was so fascinating that all of these outlets reviewed the film and half of them were just like oh the mystery doesn't make sense and then a bunch of them would be like the mystery doesn't make sense because it's a giallo but you know he shouldn't have stuck so close to the giallo because it doesn't work and then even fewer of them would say oh this film is interestingly queer huh and then they would just leave it at that No one's picking up on how nuanced and interesting and complicated this film is and what he's actually trying to do with it. Like, can we just talk about the end? Wait, Amory Tenzi, she's a French film producer and director. She contributed to the golden age of French pornography. But yeah, uh, she also directed some gay pornographic films. She died in 1994 from, oh God, sepsis and diabetes made her amputate one of her legs. Yes, I read that. And of the hundred films she made or produced, most have disappeared. But either way, big contribution to French pornography. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, wait, hold on. Though. Before we get to the end, I did want to comment on the violence in the film. Like, 
Because I'm always interested. I mean, it's, it's a bunch of queer people getting killed off. Because people are kind of inclined to jump on the whole, like, is the film homophobic? Which I don't think this film is at all. No. But the way that... Well, really the first two. Because honestly, after the first two, they're not sexual kills anymore. But the first two... Like, the first one is... I mean, it's a it's straight out of seven. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to watch. Even though it's not graphic, you see the knife come up. You know, it's lit in red. Like, there's your giallo kill. Mm-hmm. And it's a big black dildo like it's a yeah. veiny as fuck and a switchblade but it's really uncomfortable to watch like my butthole like twitched as i was watching <laughs> that scene <laughs> yeah i managed to convince my husband brian to watch this with me and i was like oh right this movie opens with a kill and he was did he check out no he actually stuck with it but he was definitely like holy shit i mean there's a definite intentionality to open this film like that to me it's the hardest kill in the film because it's also playing on the vulnerability of queer desire you pick up some person and yeah like if you're a woman and you pick some guy up and you don't really know about him he could take you home he could tie you up and he could stab you to death it happens but if you look at things like hate crimes and how men will actually pose as gay so that they can get access into a, a queer man's house or apartment and then murder them, and then they use this homo panic excuse to get off so that they can kill gay men, like this is a terrifying proposition, and he opens the movie with it. This opening is like. I compare it to La La Land because La La Land, <laughs> I no because La La Land like opens with this promise of this extravagant musical number, and instead they give you Switchblade Dildo. <laughs> but no, but like, but then the movie like doesn't ever really do that again. And while Knife Plus Heart does do that once more, I feel like the opening kind of sets you up for a movie that maybe like it doesn't fully give you, which is it's just fine. I still like the rest of the movie. I think it's a hook. It's like, hey, you're coming in expecting crazy kills and super uncomfortable sexual violence. But really, if you can make it through this, you're probably going to be fine. Well, to my knowledge, I'm going off memory here. I don't think I've ever been tied up by anyone. And I never will. I never will. (laughs) Because I am so terrified. I've seen too many movies. But while that first kill is kind of the hardest one... I think that the second kill, the teary kill, is very scary. Because I find the mask the killer wears, just a gimp mask, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. And it goes on for so long. Because he, ma- he basically, like, you know, makes a strung out, like, heroined up teary blow the dildo. Yeah. It's all these close-ups of the killer's face as he's making these sounds. Like, they're not really moans. They're, like... Somewhere between a squeal and a cry and a wheeze. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable. I mean, and it goes on for, like... A while before, you know, he pops the switchblade out and then it goes out the back of Terry's head. Mm -hmm. I have trouble watching that just because it's it's creepy and that mask is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. I think that one to me is a little bit easier because in the first scene with poor Carl, there's Mm. there's no sexual nature to it. Like the killer, you see him unzip his pants and you think you're going to maybe get a little bit of D. And instead, he pulls out the dildo, and you're like, oh, and then, oh, there's a knife that's coming out of that. Like, it eschews sexuality, it jumps over it, and goes straight into violence. Whereas with Thierry, it lasts long enough that you can almost get turned on by it, because I'm not going to lie, I've seen plenty of pornography where men suck on dildos. Yeah. So my mind immediately associates that with, like, 
hey, you getting a bit turned on by this? Because it's basically a phallus, like it's a substitute phallus, but it's mm-hmm. some guy giving head. And you're like, okay, well, that's enjoyable if you like this kind of thing, which I, you do. Well, and like this movie is kind of the epitome too of like, you know, it treats the queerness as so normal. Like it's not like pointing out the queerness so much, but it's also all about the queerness. Like it walks that yeah. line perfectly between it. It's 100% about the queerness all the time, but it's also not like, hey, I've got a fucking neon rainbow going over this club. Like, even when Anne follows Loey into that club, Mm -hmm. pretty sure it's going to be a gay club, but it's not bar butthole or the vag or something ridiculous like that. It's just a bar that (laughs) has a bunch of ladies in it, and then all of a sudden you're like... Oh, okay. I can basically see your tits through that shirt, and there's a lot of of grinding, and the smoke machine is on full blast. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Actually, because there is heroin in the movie, but I was surprised that there wasn't more, like, cocaine or something. Like, Like, a lot of, like, drug representation. This is true. I don't know if it's because we're meant to see a lot of these performers as kind of blue collar, low wage kind of guys, like construction workers. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say like strung out junkies, but Anne also doesn't seem like the kind of person, you know, like she doesn't like a limp dick. She makes that pretty fucking obvious. She she wants a big old boner. She sure does. And that's why you need to have a... (laughs) A oh, mouth, a mouth of, of gold. gold. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who I think is like a bunch of people's favorite character. Well, okay, and so this is a, I'm assuming a genderqueer person. Or I wasn't sure. I read I... a bunch of reviews that named this person as a man. So it's a slightly overweight individual, but it's never clear. And they never actually named the character other than Bouche Doll. So this is the fluffer who gets... The actor's ready. Played by Pierre Pirol. Okay, so a man. That's a man. But, but it could be a genderqueer character, for all we know. Right. Well, they're freely inspired by Carmelo Petix, but I don't know who that is. Well, I think it's just a, it's another historically famous person in the porn world, the French porn world. Yeah. Which is cool. Okay, so I will say I don't find the film homophobic. I don't find the violence no, homophobic. No, no. I did want to raise the flag, and this is when I kind of wish that we actually had a hotline i'm wondering what you think of the character of martin he's a performer from the film that Guy is killing people over Mm -hmm. and then he transitions into mesia okay i said marta but i couldn't remember and then i was like shit i don't know Nah, it's mesia thank you well no no it's okay (laughs) i was surprised and i'm not gonna lie a little upset that we did lose the calling card of the killer um with the dildo because he kills Carl interior with the switchblade dildo, and then when he gets to Mizia, it's just a knife to the chest, or a knife to the back. Mm-hmm. And then the one guy gets a throat slashed, Loie gets a knife in the chest, knife in the heart, actually. Ooh, title. I know. <laughs> oh my god, it all makes sense. Uh, podcast over. And then, well, we'll, we'll go to the ending, but yeah, I, why? Why would you lose the calling card? I guess because, I mean, there's no more sexual deaths. I think that was one of the things that I appreciated about Mizia's death. I didn't love the fact that we get to know a character and then she's almost immediately dispatched. It kind of felt like, well, why introduce this person? Yeah. And she seems lovely. And I was Sorry, confused. No, I, was just, I was confused as to why that they were on the picnic with them because they didn't really seem to. I mean, besides Mesia, but like her posse, they didn't seem to get along with everyone. 
<laughs> well, they had a bit of a punk aesthetic vibe going on, so mm-hmm. maybe that's just their damn the man kind of attitude. Maybe. And offered them, I'm sure, plenty of money to appear in the movie, so. Yeah, also true. <laughs> so, but you were mentioning something, though, about, I guess, the handling of Mizia's death? Because Mizia is a trans person. Yes, I just thought it was strange to introduce that character because we meet her and that group of girls a ways into the film. Mm -hmm. And then we see them film their couple of scenes and then they're at the rap party and then everybody scatters when this sudden storm comes up. And that's kind of your cue. If you haven't watched this movie and you realize that we spoiled 98% of it, but you still plan to watch it. This is where the movie starts to take an abrupt turn yep. into that meandering giallo land. Yep. But I thought it was very strange to introduce a character for just a couple of scenes and then murder her off. And it's your trans character. And it's your trans character. Like, I appreciated the inclusion, but it was like, so you introduce this character and then you just immediately kill her. Like, I'm not going to lie. I kind of thought that Archie was going to be the next to go. I'm surprised Archie. Well, but again, though, when you get into the motive of the killer, Archie's never a target. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely one of those things where you realize very long after the fact, oh, that's why Mesia had to die. Because she used to be Martin, and Martin was in this film, yeah. and everyone who's in that film gets to die. I will say, though, so you mentioned something at the beginning of the episode about how, you know, oh, he's targeting them because of this. And it, it made it sound like it was not in- intentionally the wrong word, but, like, I got the impression that while Guy, like, knew what he was doing, like, he really thought that these people were, like, the real ones in his life. I, don't, I mean, it's never really made clear, I don't think, but, like, there's clearly psychological mm-hmm. damage on Guy. <laughs> understandably so and I, sometimes i was like i don't uh, really know if he fully knew what he was doing half the time uh, are you reading that just based on the fact that he misconstrues nans as Heacham in the end maybe because i took that as oh you see someone who looks identical to your dead lover mm-hmm. who you have clearly not gotten over Wait. and i i took that to be like oh okay it's this one instance i didn't think that he was misconstruing the other people yeah. well if only because we are given no insight into why he's doing this until that very moment. can we say though nons looks identical to his dead lover and also looks identical to fuad so there's like a triplet situation going on here <laughs> Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, right? Because there's so much doubling in this movie, which you know I love. Yeah, yeah. I love doubling. Call back to Dead Ringers, I guess. That and just the idea that we've got a protagonist and a killer who are psychically linked, so they're kind of like mirror images of each other in that sense, because they're both driven by these urges. It's just that Guy executes them with murder, and Anne executes them on film. But they're both pining for a lost lover. Guy's happens to be dead, Anne's happens to be her editor. But they're kind of both undergoing this transformation. I kind of like the fact that so many of the male actors looked fucking interchangeable with each other. Like, at the final scene, the kind of coda scene that plays over the end credits. Uh, The end credits, which are ten minutes long. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It doesn't play over all of the ten minutes. No, no, it's half of them. I think it does play, yeah, for like four or five. I was like, are these men people that we know are they dead men are they just new actors like they all look the same because they're skinny twinks with curly hair i think that's just your queer paradise like that that, (laughs) that's what that that's my queer paradise hey i love a greco-roman theme it's like give me sailors at the top (laughs) and then if i can't have that then sure i'll take a greco-roman thing right 
I like Atoka. Okay, so I cut you off, and, you know, you wanted to just go right into the ending. So You know me, I'm all about the finish. No, yeah. The, like a big climax. The climax, absolutely. So, we, we, Come on, I don't even get a laugh out of you. Jesus Christ. I, <laughs> so, worst. The climax, I guess we're just starting with the premiere of Homicidal. Homocidal. Mm-hmm. Tell me if it gave you some screen to that. It did. No, it did. Or screen two or demons. I guess actually really would be screen two though, because it's like they're watching a movie about the real Mm -hmm. life, which makes sense. Totally get that. And I'm going to assume that's intentional. Uh, I, to be honest, I think Demons is probably a bit more likely, yeah. but they're both well-known enough for these particular scenes that mm-hmm. take place in a movie theater with scenes reenacting violence. I think it's entirely plausible. Yeah. So here's your other happenstance thing. So th- the killer is in this theater, you know, um, beh- mm-hmm. sitting behind Nons watching Homocidal. Okay. Then it's a double feature that just so happens... To show the movie that set the killer off to begin with. And that's what Mm. causes Anne to realize, oh, fuck, this is what's going on. Yeah. It's a moldy oldie. It's whatever. It's just like, come on. (laughs) So I I wasn't sure when I was doing the recap, but I don't know why. I took it as this is the premiere of the film. So that's why she goes, that's why they're playing it on repeat. Mm -hmm. So it would then make sense that they would use the intermission to do a retrospective of some of her former titles. So if that was one of the bigger ones that she made, it might be like, oh, yeah. But I mean, you can hear me speculating (laughs) as I'm talking. It's just like, "Ah, here you go, whatever. But of course, by this point, though, Guy has already followed Nan's into the sex blackout room. Mm-hmm. So tell me, Trace, how did this compare to your sex blackout <laughs> room experiences? Was it on par? I'm not going to lie. I want to go to this place. Have you not been to a, a sex, sex blackout, blackout place? Room? No, I've never been to one. Have you? Oh, okay. I've not been, but I know many people. I was who like, you acted been. really shocked by that. <laughs> you acted like they're uncommon. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't I, think I could wander down to the Black Eagle right now and. Sometimes they have underwear nights, and sometimes they have no clothing nights, and I don't know if you get a flashlight for $3. That seems like a bit of an interesting deal. I think when it's blackout, it's blackout. I don't... I mean, Austin does not have something like that. I don't know if that's a... I don't know if that's an American... Prudes in the U.S. Listen, I think... Listeners, by all means... I mean, maybe L.A. has something like that. (gasps) Yes, listeners, tell us your blackout story (laughs) experiences. Or just tell us if you have Just tell us if you have them. I've never seen something like this before. But maybe that's just my virginal mind. I think back to... Speaking of sleazy sexual thrillers, this definitely took me back to the opening scene of The Howling where D. Wallace gets lured by the yes. serial killer yes, into... Yes, 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 I mean, it's not quite the same because that's where you're actually watching the blue movies in well, yeah. stalls and... This type of place, A, it feels something that's European, which is maybe why you're familiar with it in Canada. <laughs> and French. Sure, we're very continental. Yes, but also, like, yeah, it feels also something that's very queer. Like, I don't think you find this in, like, I don't think straight people have something like this. Oh, Jesus Christ, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think uh, the closest that you would get is something like uh, that Natalie Porter movie where she's Portman? like a dancer. Portman. Portman. Wait, 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 where she's like a dancer? Black Swan? No, the one that's a play. Closer. Sorry. Let's uh. rewind for a moment. I think the straight alternative is something like Natalie Portman in Closer where you can pay to raise the shield so that you can see the dancers. Right. That makes sense. But I mean, even those are 
I don't think excessively common. Well, admittedly, one of the reasons this movie had to be set back in the 70s is because things like porno theaters, they all got right. shut down throughout the 80s. Oh my god, and the, the guy masturbating in the theater, I was like, oh, it's Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> or it's just Paul Rubens. A random dude, <laughs> because <laughs> back in that time, that's what you did. That's yeah. why you go to those. I know. I know. I can't imagine watching porn in a communal environment. I mean, I can't imagine it. It's just like, it's foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I've been to a dirty movie theater. <gasps> they had one that closed, I think, shortly after I visited it in Montreal. But I wanted to check it out for that very reason, because at that point, it was such a novelty experience that I had to go in. It was like 5 or $10. You could stay in there as long as you wanted. And it was extremely uncomfortable because nobody wanted to do anything. Yeah, I can imagine that. I think everybody was kind of like, am I going to get to see a show? And it was like, well, if nobody makes a move, then nothing is going to happen. So it's literally just a giant porn film being (laughs) projected. (laughs) Everybody being too apprehensive to go near each other. (laughs) So nothing happened? Nothing happened. Oh, that's really disappointing. That's a real blue balls right there. There you go. But the end of the story ends with a switchblade dildo. No, it does not. Yeah, it's, no, it's not. Uh, well, yeah, so, yeah, so, okay, so Anne realizes what is going on. After, by the way, though, having a weird hallucination where all the corpses are, like, haunting her in the theater. Because mm-hmm. she's passed out drunk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, day drinking, man. We've all been there. Yeah. So we get the full flashback, you know, that, you know, uh, Guy and Hisham, uh, I guess it was, is it Guy's dad or is it Hisham's dad? Do we ever know? I think it's Guy's dad. Okay. Yeah, he finds them. Which he... maybe makes it all the more worse because it's like your parents yeah. didn't believe in your love and then they burned your lover to death. Right. Well, but the and the mom is like, you know, a shell of herself drunk by his grave in that weird town. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Amrose is going on. She goes and she saves Nans from Guy, who then runs out on stage and gets beat to Gee, death. Not nouns, yeah. I'm sorry, Gee. Gee runs up the stage <laughs> and gets beat to death by all the gay men in the audience. Yeah, so I feel like people could misinterpret this ending and mm-hmm. see it as, oh shit, gays are A, killing each other, but then also when they get exposed, other gays kill the killer. Which is what happens, but it's not driven by a hatred of homosexuality which is what you would tend to see in sexual thrillers well that's true but that's what they think it is because that one guy says you know you like beating up fags i think i think that's mm-hmm. his exact phrasing yes i believe but yeah and so that's why they that's an, almost their own appropriation where they're saying this is a queer space right they mistakenly think that because he was attacking a man that he must be a, a homophobic hate crimer yeah, so in that case, it's almost an uplifting ending, except for the fact that, no, he's actually just a tortured gay man. Well, and yeah, and that, that that's what's so tragic. It's so tragic. And actually, did, does he get a knife in his heart, too? Because he gets stabbed. He gets stabbed. I don't know that you see where he gets stabbed. And that's what sucks is, like, you know, the movie gives you this incredibly tragic story to make you feel sympathy for this killer. And that's also where I'm like, I don't know if he really knows what he's doing. Like, he knows what he's doing, but... So that might be my, me, like, reconciling his atrocious acts <laughs> with, with his yeah. backstory. It's a way to get revenge about something that you have no capacity to affect. Well, because we're also, like, we're assuming that he has not been a murderer his whole life. It's just seeing this movie set off something in him to where mm-hmm. he you could almost 
argue, maybe, that he's like in a fugue state doing all this. Yeah, and that's another trope that this film is taking from Giallo films, where it's about violence that is informed by sexuality or sexually motivated violence. So in this case, it's the intersection of having this forbidden love affair. Were he not gay, none of this would have happened. Yeah. So it's because of a horrible crime that was committed against him by his presumably homophobic father that has instigated the series of queer-based murders. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, straight people weren't killing gay people, shit wouldn't get bad. Yeah, it makes sense. It just really sucks. And it doesn't have a Yeah, it sucks because no one gets a happy ending in this movie. And it just it, and it just ends there. Yeah. You don't even see like like a where where are they now? Except that they're in this gay paradise. Maybe that's why he ends it with that credit sequence because it's like doesn't matter. They're all in paradise. They're in heaven. A little bit. That is the piece that to me I have the most difficulty processing because I don't know if it's meant to be Anne's perfect dream where Louis is still alive and she's making movies and they're bigger and more beautiful and even like bigger budgeted like the set looks opulent the costumes are good the men are arguably like they're more diverse they're more interesting so Mm -hmm. maybe this is like her perfect idealization of what her career would be it's a good place to go out on i did also think um, i'm backtracking a little bit here but the makeup on Guy was really good i also wondered and just because the plot's similar how much it took from the burning with cropsy Hmm. yeah but we're also forgetting this fucking bird which by the way lands on him when he dies yeah so this magical bird because obviously you can just say oh he survived the fire that his dad set in the barn like that's like whatever it was like a weird miracle but the whole mythology of it's a grackle a oh god a shaladra grackle and it's like oh yeah people would take them to the dying and hope for a miracle and it was said that the bird absorbed the death and flew into the sun to burn off the death but when they flew so close to the sun, they went blind. So it's a blind grackle. And then the person would not die. Mm-hmm. So are we to believe there's a real supernatural element in this movie? Or is that just like a, no, it's superfluous. Oh, I've got to think that there's supernatural elements, whether or not you want to give them a lot of credit. To me, the pyramid stuff, the guy with the funky hand, which I'm sure could be a real condition. But yeah. everything to do with the bird, everything to do with her visions, like those are all very... Like, you're not meant to understand them, but you are meant to associate a supernatural element is at play. Gotcha. And then, you know, the bird tries to, I guess, save him in the end, but nope, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and then 10 minutes of credits. Yeah. Well, you know, that Kickstarter don't pay for itself. I I, I was a little surprised that it just, it just ends there, because it felt kind of impersonal for a movie that is very interested in its characters. Dude, it's mirroring her pornography film where they stab the killer her oh yeah and then it's just gay violence is killing a lot of people or you know that guy couldn't process it. i can't remember what the what oh, the line is no no but then the movie just ends no it's um no i have the line so yeah okay. in, in homicidal it's revealed that yeah this woman Anne, is the killer killing all the men in this movie because she wanted to be gay well, yes. And so so, so the, the actor and their actress in the film says she saw so many gay flakes, she thought she was a fag. Mother by day, murderer by night. Hmm. Okay. And? Yeah. The whole idea is that you don't need closure because you got the answer. Like, this is why they did it. Yeah. And now they've been dealt with. They're dead. The movie's over. Also, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm ping-ponging a lot here. I'm so sorry. But the weird... Ten, I, it feels like ten minutes long, but it's probably like five. The weird bear dance sequence... In the lesbian oh, bar. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. The lesbian performance. Yeah. 
It's was so giving long. me Mulholland Drive. I was getting yeah. Mulholland Drive vibes off that. Yeah, no, it's something. It's something to behold. But again, could be cut out, wouldn't make a difference. Um, I'm trying to remember where that occurs in the film, but that to me seemed like another one of those. It could be taken out, but it was also a moment that made Anne realize her culpability and things that were happening. Yeah. Because that film was all about also sexual violence, right? People coming together and then the, the bear being like, we're having sex, but oops, I killed you because I mauled you to death. Right, right. That's sort of what she does to Loie, as well as many of the actors on her set. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Thematic symbolism. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, any lingering thoughts on Knife Plus Art? Uh, I mean, I would say I do really enjoy the score. Oh, yeah. M83. Mm-hmm. I've liked their music before. I find the score striking in Oblivion as well, even though I don't love that movie. I've never seen it. Uh, it's not great. Watch yeah. Edge of Tomorrow instead. That's oh. the better Tom Cruise one. Always. I own that shit on Blu-ray. Um, yeah. No, yeah, I think the score is great. I mean, it's not... No, I'm going to stop. Uh, it, I, I like the score. I think it's good. It's not It's not as like memorable to me as you know something like, obviously, like something like Suspiria, but it's good. Oh. Yeah, but it is interesting that Jan Gonzalez opted to go for something that was kind of memorable in that way but he obviously is not going to try to outdo goblin and in a way it's kind of fun because he's putting a french spin on all of these italian ideas right better to put a french spin on goblin than his french brother yeah who was part of a very well-known apparently band Mm -hmm. i guess the (laughs) only other thing (laughs) that i'll bring up is I managed to catch a Jan Gonzalez short at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. I sent it to you. I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch it. I did not have the opportunity to watch it. I don't know how readily accessible it is. It was part of a shorts program called Slade, which was all queer horror because, yeah, folks, queer horror, it's a thing. It's amazing. You can get little mini queer horror films, and often they're very focused and tight and interesting. This one was not. This one was actually very similar to this giallo-infused section, Mm. but it actually has a lot of parallels. So the short that I'm talking about is called Islands. It was made, I think, directly before he made Knife Plus Heart, and it follows three intersecting stories that merge together. So it starts with a boy and a girl. They're having sex on a couch. And all of a sudden, this burnt monster with a vagina face comes up behind the girl. And it looks like he's about to murder her. And then he ends up engaging with them. And they have a very graphically sexual threesome where you get to see the scarred penis of the monster. Oh! Yeah, so if you're looking for more D from Yon, you know, track down islands. But the fun thing about that is that it then pulls back and it reveals that the entire... The entire thing has been a staged performance and there's an audience of people watching it. Mm-hmm. And then one of the people from the audience leaves and it's, or sorry, two people from the audience leave and it's a trans woman and a man and they were on a date and they end up walking through the park and they see a bunch of gay men hooking up and then they end up getting caught in some kind of storm, but they see a woman who's recording different conversations on her old tiny walkman then it follows her for a bit and eventually it kind of circles back so it's a very 
it's very similar in the way that it's dreamlike and fluid and it's not so much trying to tell a story as it's evoking an experience but it's very queer it's all gay women trans characters a little bit of graphic nudity it's got a great score so it's kind of like a mini version of knife plus heart and i would encourage people to check it out it's about 20 minutes long as i said i don't know how available it is though well i mean yeah that's great i'm i'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad that he's saying focus on queer horror at least yeah we need more people like him he reminds me of a lot of the other very out proud queer horror people that we're more conventionally familiar with on this side i was gonna say across the pond but i'll just say in north america yeah and i like these auteurs who are wearing their queer sensibility on their sleeves you know they're not necessarily making a horribly radical art like they're not all bruce the bruces where they're so challenging that some people will just never be able to get into them but i do like that we're now seeing the spectrum where people are making very lgbtq plus friendly shorts or they're making some really positive I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's okay. I just like the fact that we've got a bunch of these people making different types of movies, and it's a very obvious thing, no. as opposed to films that had to hide it back in the past. I'm looking forward to the day where we can have a queer horror film festival. Right? Like that's yeah. that, that, that that's that's the goal that we should be striving for. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that people are really going to appreciate about Knife Plus Heart is that it is unabashedly queer and... Mm-hmm. It's just nice to see something that is so front and center. And you can say now, like, oh, okay, well, tell me about a queer horror film because I'm really not familiar with it. Now we can direct people and say, like, here's a really gay-ass jello slasher film. And if someone says, hey, what's a good gay slasher? Now we have something besides Hellbent to tell people, which, don't get me wrong, Hellbent's fun, but (laughs) it's always the only answer we have. Exactly. Yeah. And interestingly enough, both of them are almost entirely populated by queer characters. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well... All right. Do you have a game? I do have a game. Okay. What's your game? It's a fast one, though. Okay. So I played it before I propositioned this to you. So the game is to come up with your porn name. So if you were an adult performer, OnlyFans, or a legitimate site, what would your name be? So I I plugged both of our names into a porn name generator. Oh, yay! But they're really dumb, so I encourage you to think about what you would like to be considered. So I put in Joseph, and my born name was Butt Hard On. <laughs> <laughs> Butt Hard On. That's like yeah. so... Okay, not, not, it's on it's, the nose. <laughs> it's so on the nose, yeah. And then I put in Trace, and the result was really stupid, so I put in your real first name. Oh, Lloyd. Yes, and so your porn name would be Chuck Slick Booty. Oh, I would. That's better than yours. I don't know how I feel about the word slick, but Chuck Booty's fun. So it's actually really funny because um, my husband went and did drag recently, and I, I didn't for the first time. And like you know, he had his own name. His name was Barbie Koa, but not bad. I know. I think it's really fun. But so I haven't. I've never done drag before. But one of my friends was like, "Oh, um, I have your name. It's Alicia Keybumps," and I was like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Not because I have a coke habit, but just because it's really funny. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... But that's not the same as, as a porn, porn name. Star. No, I know. I know. I was... It just... It's funny that you're doing that because I, I literally had this discussion with someone, like, within this past week. I'm very timely. Very timely. I don't really know my porn name. I've never really... I've never been good at that shit. What, what is, like... It's, like, a, the the street you lived on? Oh, one was your middle name and the name of your first pet. 
That was another one that I saw. But Ooh. to me, that also always sounds like a phishing attempt. And by phishing, I mean a PH. Yeah. So just a fair warning to people. If you see things where they're like, oh, tell us about what your first job was and the oh. name of your best friend and, you know, where you grew up. People collect that shit, and that's how they steal your identities. So just FYI, yeah. be mindful about the quizzes that you take. I was stuff. about to tell you what that was, and now I'm like, mm, maybe I won't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think that's not enough information for people to steal your identity, then by all means, share it. But, you know, yeah, just be mindful. For so. sure. Oh, I had a really good one. Well, that's okay. I'll tell you offline. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, oh, okay, cool. So then, listeners, send in what your porn name is. You can do one of those. Well, actually, no, don't do the middle name and the and the. No, yeah. Game. Just think of a fun one. Just in think case of you're a fun wondering, one. mine is Max Slate. Max Slate. No, not Max. Uh, Mac. Oh, Mac Slate. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Send us your porn names, and the funny ones can go in the next mailbag episode. Mm, I like it. Okay. Love it. Well, I think that concludes our discussion of Knife Plus Heart. So before, Joe, you tell everyone what we're going to be discussing next week, let's go through some housekeeping. So if you <laughs> if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. Oh, sorry. That's my cue. Yep. And I'm at Beast on my remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. Or you can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. We would also appreciate leaving us a review or a, just a simple rating on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Uh, you know, it's great. And if you like what you've listened to and you want to hear even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus content each month. This week, we have an episode on Ma that just dropped. And we also have, of mm-hmm. course, an episode on Netflix's The Perfection, which is amazing. But um, in just a couple weeks, we will have an episode on the first three episodes of AMC's Nosferatu, which yeah. I'm very excited for yeah it should be exciting so joe what are we covering next week your time in foreign purgatory has come to an end yes we have (laughs) been to canada we've been to france a couple times we've uh, been to germany and we're finally going to come back to your home the us of a and we are starting a six week adventure into franchise territory so very exciting we're going to start off with one that is I can't remember if this is celebrating a milestone. No, it'll be it'll be 19 years old. <laughs> yeah. So we're starting with good old Final Destination. So we're not doing the whole franchise. We're just going to start with the original, the 2000 entry. But yeah, we're going to see what death has in store for us. I uh, Yeah, you got your queer screenwriter, Jeffrey Reddick, on that one. But what I also love is that after coming off of this one, that movie, they are flying to Paris. So, going from a French movie to a movie that isn't French, but has France involved in the plot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, put on your berets and avoid going to the airport. Yes. Because we are doing Final Destination. And come listen to Death Speak. No, don't Mm -hmm. say that. That's that's not very funny. (laughs) Come hear us talk about these awesome deaths from a really fun movie. You betcha. And so, on that note, we can cross out Knife Plus Heart. Yes. And cross out Horror Queers. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.